Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 this evening. We're continuing our study in Hebrews, and we're turning a corner here, but it's calling us to do what we've been doing, and that is to glory in the greatness of Jesus. To do that, we've got to consider Him. We need to see Him as He really is. Let me invite you to consider him from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. This is the word of God. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Our Father, speak your word to us tonight. Be our teacher. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see Jesus. Do what only you can do by the work of your spirit for the glory of Christ and for our own good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is election week. We're praying about this, we just did, and candidates are and have been seeking our allegiance. They want to win us to their side. They promise that they will be faithful to the Constitution or faithful to uh, uh, the great American ideals and principles or faithful to their party platform. They also tell us what they intend to do, what they hope to build. Should they get in, they give us as well their credentials, why they are worthy, what positions perhaps they felt, what they've done in the past. And we are invited by them to compare and contrast them with their other candidates. And they hope to gain our allegiance, not just through the election on Tuesday, but for as long as they stay in Office. Now, if you have been a longtime supporter of one candidate, a long with longtime affection for them, perhaps, a, a long held belief that they are what you need, getting you to switch candidates is a daunting prospect. How to persuade you? Well, you've got to see that the other one is better. The contrast needs to be made clear. 
But wouldn't it also be persuasive if the new candidate could show you that they embody the ideals of the one you had your old allegiance for? Uh, That really to support them is in fact to continue your support for the life's work of the other, only in a superior way. Well, that is something of what we actually have here in Hebrews chapter 3. Jewish Christians with a long family history, thousands of years of following and boasting in Moses, the great lawgiver, the great mediator of Israel and her relationship with God, Moses. And some of them have begun to look to Jesus as the Messiah in fulfillment of Mosaic promise. But they have begun to waver in their allegiance. They've begun to scratch their heads and and under pressure from family members say, I don't know if Jesus is really as important as we're making him out to be. And we know Moses is supremely important in Israel. He's, he's dominated us for so long and their past experience is enticing them. Their family and societal pressures and they're growing confused over why or how Jesus is better. And so the author says, look, let's compare them. Let's contrast them. I want you to see how they are alike. And I want you to see how more excellent Jesus is. And I want you to see, he's saying, that if Moses were standing in front of you today, he'd also tell you to put your hopes in Jesus. Consider Jesus, the writer says. This is his exhortation. Consider him. Fix your eyes on him. Give your full attention to him. Give your mind to him. Think hard about him. What's so great about Jesus? And he highlights, or let me put it this way, in three things. In verses 1 and 2, he says that Jesus is faithful in God's house. In verses 3 and 4, he says Jesus is the builder of God's house. And in verses 5 and 6, he says Jesus is the son over God's house. He's faithful in it he's the builder of it and he's the son over it and he's going to compare and contrast jesus with moses so that our allegiance the people he's writing to their allegiance will be to jesus so you don't walk away you won't dismiss him as something small and insignificant we're all tempted well the world the flesh and the devil we're all attempted by the cares and concerns of this life to turn away from a God we haven't seen physically with the eye. What's so great about Jesus? Why should he hold your allegiance? Well, in verses 1 and 2, he says this, Jesus is faithful in God's house just as Moses was. Notice the language. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Who was what? Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So he's comparing them, and very respectfully, to Moses. And he's actually saying, Moses was faithful. I totally agree with you. 
And Jesus is faithful like Moses. Now we need to think about Moses then, or we won't understand why this mattered to the people he was writing to. They had such love and affection for Moses. It's possible that it's been decades since you tapped into your Old Testament, thought much about Moses at all. He may not hold that kind of affection in your heart. And so we should think about him for a moment. You remember that God called Moses out of Egypt. He brought him into the wilderness and God refined him. Moses, it took 40 years for him to grow up in Pharaoh's household to be educated in all the ways of the Egyptians. It took 40 years in the wilderness for God to break him down, wreck him, and rebuild him as a shepherd of people so that for the next 40 years he could lead the people of Israel, delivering them from bondage, from cruel slavery, rescuing them, and walking or marching them towards the promised land, as the mediator, the go-between between God and the people of God. And when God called him to lead the children of Israel out of the land, you remember Moses was faithful. He believed God. And he went and he offered himself as their leader. And he got them, he confronted Pharaoh. He got them to the Red Sea. And you remember at the Red Sea, he didn't know what he was going to do. All Pharaoh's army is coming from behind. There's no way forward through water. It's all going to fall apart. But he believed God. God said, and the miracle happened, and the waters parted, and they went through. He believed. He was faithful. He watched over them in the wilderness. He brought them to Mount Sinai to hear God speak to them. And he, he went up on the mountain. Moses met with God face to face as a man meets with his friend. When he came down off the mountain, his face was glowing with the glory of God. And Moses received God's law. And passed God's law onto the people. Law that was precious to the people of God. Law that constituted them as a nation. Law that told them how to worship and be acceptable to God through the sacrifices. Law that shaped their life together as a community. Moses is extremely important. Now we should say it is true that Moses made some mistakes. Maybe there's glaring ones coming to your mind. You do remember one time he struck the rock. He hit it instead of speaking to it. The first time he was told to hit it. The second time he was told to speak to it. But he struck it both times. He wasn't supposed to do that. He was wrong. He was not a sinless man. He was not a faultless man. He was certainly not a perfect man. But he was faithful to what God called him to do. He taught the people faithfully God's holy law. He didn't leave anything out. He didn't change anything. He didn't put anything extra in. And God remembers his faithfulness. This text remembers it. But actually, he's picking up, I think, on a phrase from Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, where it says, My servant Moses is faithful In all my house. The Jews were really, really impressed with him. Rightfully so. And now here in Hebrews it says Jesus is faithful in God's house. Jesus is faithful to do what God appointed him to do. To say what God appointed him to say. Just like Moses is faithful. If it's all right to follow Moses. It's also all right to follow Jesus he's saying. 
How was Jesus faithful? This text tells you he was faithful as an apostle and he was faithful as a priest and he was faithful to us in doing amazing things for us. He was faithful as an apostle. He speaks of him as as our apostle, the apostle of our confession, verse 1 and verse 2. An apostle, what is that? It's someone who sent. An apostle in its most basic definition. It's a kind of ambassador. God sent him to speak to us. Jesus said in John chapter 7, verse 28, I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And in John chapter 12, verse 49, he says, For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given, him, has, uh, given me a commandment, what to say, what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life and what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. He was faithful as an apostle from God and to us. He was also faithful as high priest. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. And he was faithful that way. What does a priest do? A priest represents us to God. Now, the rest of the book is going to have much to say about the priesthood. And so we won't go into great deal. But just remember what he's already said. In chapter 1, in the first four verses, he said Jesus made purification for sins. He provided for cleansing from sin so that we could be clean before God. And in chapter 2, last week, we saw Jesus provided propitiation for sin. Jesus turned away the wrath of God that we could be free before God, welcomed before God. This is the work of a priest. He assures you that these things are from God, and he did it. He said what God wanted him to say. He did what God sent him to do. As an apostle, he speaks to us from God. As a priest, he speaks for us to God. And what is the effect of this apostleship, and what is the effect of this priesthood? Here's the great benefit for us. It's not just all pie in the sky. What does he call these believers who believe in this Jesus? He calls them holy brethren, brothers and sisters with a heavenly calling. Notice his language there. Again, back in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling. What's he talking about there? He's saying, look, the whole point of Jesus speaking God's truth to you and Jesus being a priest on your behalf to God so that you can be welcomed is that he would set you apart. He would sanctify you or he would make you holy. He would make you a saint, literally. That you would belong to God because of his work for you. And not just a saint, but a brother, a sister, family. He's not afraid or ashamed to own you as your elder brother and say that one there is mine. They are my sister. They are my brother. We belong in the same family. And he uh, as well, uh, in him, we have a heavenly calling. Jesus came from heaven and takes you to heaven. The call comes from heaven. The call leads to heaven. The call ends in heaven. This is our destiny in him. And so this is what you are in him. Because he's your apostle and high priest. And he was faithful in that. So, you should keep trusting Jesus. 
He's the mediator of the new covenant. Like Moses was the mediator of the old covenant. And he did exactly what needed to be done for us. In Jesus' case, there's not a shred of unfaithfulness to overlook. Though in Moses' case, he had his lapses, yet God chooses to remember his faithfulness. And for us, as we serve in this household and in this family and before God, none of us will attain perfection in faithfulness here. That's why we need the perfect faithfulness of Jesus to be accounted to us. But isn't it wonderful and amazing that Jesus says for those who follow him, for those who walk with him, that one day we will hear the well done, good and faithful servant. Our sins are remembered no more before the face of God. But he does in kindness and generosity remember our work of service before him. Let's remember that by way of application as we as a church prepare to vote for church officers. We don't vote on whether Jesus is king and head of his church. He is. We don't vote on whether he's the apostle or high priest. He is. But you do vote in your heart on whether you'll follow him, whether you'll have him. There's a sense in which you take him or you reject him. But also under him, the chief shepherd, we have under shepherds in the church. And as we prepare to, to, to vote in the next month or so uh, for officers, we want those men to be faithful to their calling, worthy of their office. But at the end of the day, you remember, we're going to be voting on sinners to serve Jesus among us. Let us choose men who know, profoundly know, that they are sinners in need of sovereign grace. Men who know that they are not the Messiah and who know that they cannot be the Messiah for us and to us, but who do know how to point us to the Messiah because they themselves cling to the Messiah. And I say that because it is, and and I, I caution all who are, aiming to stand for election. It is easy in the kingdom and in the kingdom work to think that you can bear the weight of the kingdom on your shoulders or that somehow God expects you to or that the church, because they voted for you, wants you to. To think that the future of the church is in your hands. To think that you can solve everybody's problem. You can meet everybody's needs instead of pointing them to the only one who can and sometimes just saying I don't even know how to help you but there is one who can let me pray for you as you vote vote for men who cling to the faithful apostle and high priest they'll be the ones who are patient and gracious with you as you struggle to cling to him too. That's the first thing. Jesus is faithful in all God's house just as Moses was. The second is in verses 3 and 4. Jesus is the builder of God's house. But Moses is just a member of it. Here he contrasts them. Jesus is here seen to be better than Moses. 
as in chapter 1, 1 to 4, Jesus is better than the prophets. He's a better revelation of God. He's the fulfillment of all that they said. And as in chapters 1 and 2, Jesus is better than the angels. He's greater than the angels as the God and man. So now, this passage says Jesus is better than Moses. Notice the language, verses 3 and 4. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Look. Some of you know the frustration of living in a house that isn't quite right. Finishing nails weren't used properly on the trim. Electrical outlets are in the weirdest places. The insulation is too thin. It it stays warm in the summer. It stays cold in the winter. You get frustrated at the house in which you live. But don't you find that so often your thoughts actually turn to the builder? Who built this thing? Who's responsible for this mess? I'll never buy a house by so-and-so again, we say to ourselves. Now the opposite is true, and I know for some of you, you've tasted the blessing of a good builder. You're impressed with your house, its craftsmanship, its attention to detail. You may even have bought that house knowing the reputation of the builder that's why you wanted it and having lived in it you're still impressed by the builder and you sing his praises her praises to house hunters there are both kind of builders in Siloam Springs the glory of the builder of the good house has more honor than the house itself And so it is the author here says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses is simply part of the house of God. Jesus is the builder of the house of God. There's a fairy tale told, written of late. The writer asks us to imagine a man named Zeke. He goes in search of his family, which had recently disappeared. He suspects they have been taken captive by a legendary monster who lives in the castle over there on top of a smoke-veiled hill. And as Zeke approaches the fortress, it's not like any building he has ever seen before. The house is made of pure white brick, but the bricks are like nothing Zeke had ever seen. They're irregular in size and shape. They're big and small, square and round. Zeke can't understand how the house holds together. It teeters back and forth, seemingly ready to collapse, yet held together by some unseen power. More strangely, the closer he gets, he realizes each brick seems to be in constant motion. And looking even more closely, Zeke becomes convinced each brick is alive and breathing. And soon, Zeke discovers that his family isn't lost at all. They have come to the monster's house of their own, as if drawn by an unseen delight. And then Zeke meets the monster, who turns out to be the wisest and kindest man he's ever encountered. And the story ends with Zeke and his family being transformed into living stones, taking their own place 
in the great castle. It's a fairy tale about the gospel. Some of these Jewish Christians needed to be reminded that God is building one house, one household. And each of us is like living stones, like bricks in its walls. He ends Verse 6, he says, you are the house. You're the household. You're the building that Jesus is building. Moses, he says, was part of that house like you and I are a part of that house. An important part he had to play for sure. Yet Jesus is the master architect, the master planner, and the master builder. And as Moses was a part, so are you. You are a brick in the castle Jesus is building Every brick in that castle is important. Every brick has its place. There is a gap in the wall that only you fit. And not a brick is unnecessary. This is what we are in the household of God. Now let me ask you this question. What's a house for? A house is for an occupant. Who is the occupant? The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, he puts it this way. So then, you are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord, in him, in Jesus You also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God, by the Spirit, lives in the house built by Jesus. And that house isn't the building you see around you. It's you who believe in Jesus. And Jesus, he says, is greater than Moses, says the builder has more glory than the building. Maybe you have friends, maybe you have family who are contemplating converting from Christianity to Judaism. What what more might you say to them to keep them and their allegiance to Jesus? He's got one more thing. Verse 5. Now Moses, he says, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So you see it there in verses 5 and 6. Jesus is the son over the house, whereas Moses was a servant in the house. Moses was in it. Jesus is over it. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the son. He doesn't denigrate servanthood, but it's a very different thing. When you own and inherit, when you rule and reign as master and lord of the household. Moses had an important ministry in the household. What was that? Notice it was to point forward. Notice it was to, in the language, testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses' ministry looked down the road. And it looked down the road to, in fact, the coming of Jesus. In fact, Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And Jesus uh, comes 
And he says in John 5, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. So the house Moses served in and the house Jesus is building is the same house. There's a basic continuity here between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Israel and the church. There are not two houses. There are not two households. There are not two different peoples of God as some deviant theology holds, deviating from the scripture there. But there is but one. Israel and the church are one people of God. One people of God made out of two, Jew and Gentile, all believing in the same Messiah. God makes of us one new family. And to these Jewish Christians, the writer is saying, you haven't switched allegiances when you embrace Jesus. In fact, you have simply fulfilled what Moses wanted for you, what Moses foresaw for you. He spoke, testified to things that would be spoken later about the coming Messiah himself. So don't turn your back on Jesus. You would be turning your back on Moses too. Don't turn your back on Jesus. You'd be turning your back on the household of God too. Don't you want to be part of God's one true and everlasting family? So glory in Jesus, he says, like Moses, faithful in the house, unlike Moses, builder of the house, unlike Moses, the son over the house. Therefore, he says, notice his conclusion, end of verse six, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. In other words, he says, just keep on glorying in Jesus. Let me apply that in two ways, personally and politically. Personally. Remember the story of Israel and Moses. Do you remember the story in the wilderness when the people of God in numbers, it tells us the people of God spoke out against God and against Moses, the leader of God's people. They grumbled and complained. Why? They said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? You haven't taken us to the promised land yet. Why this in-between place? Much like you and I live in the in-between. We haven't yet arrived in the new heavens and the new earth, the heavenly city. Why? Why am I still here? Why, they said to him, why is there no food and water? And we loathe this worthless food. There was food. It was God's supply of food. And they grumbled and they complained. They didn't like God's plan. They didn't like God's servant. Then it says, this is Numbers. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. He was their faithful mediator. He interceded on their behalf as a priest does. And the Lord said to Moses, here's what I want you to do. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. 
And then Jesus comes along and we read it in our scripture reading in John chapter 3 verse 15. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Look to Jesus. Consider Jesus lifted up, nailed to a pole, then later raised from the dead and exalted into heaven. Look at him and you will be saved. Keep on staring at him. Keep on boasting in him. We are his house. If we hold fast our confidence in him, that if there isn't meant to shadow or unsettle your assurance, but to remind you, don't shift your allegiance somewhere else where there is no eternal life. Don't rest your hope on some past experience. The question is not, did you believe in Jesus 20 years ago, but you haven't paid any attention to him since? The question is, are you looking to Jesus to be your savior, your apostle, your priest? Now, your security is assured if you're in Jesus. He holds you in his hands and he never lets you go. But also, your continuance in believing is essential. True saving faith is persevering faith. Keep holding on. Says the poet, when the storm is raging high, when the tempest rends the sky, when my eyes with tears are dim, then my soul, consider him. When my plans are in the dust, when my dearest hopes are crushed, when is passing each foolish whim, Then my soul consider him. When with dearest friends I part, when deep sorrows fill my heart, when pain racks each weary limb, then my soul consider him. When I track my weary way, when fresh trials come each day, when my faith and hope are dim, then my soul consider him. Clouds, or sunshine, dark or bright, evening shades or morning light, when my cup flows o'er the brim, then my soul consider him. That's personally. What about politically? Remember this, only Jesus is building the house you really want to live in. The everlasting city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the household of God on Tuesday. If your candidate for elected office won, don't gloat. Glory in the only true Messiah because there is only one. And if your candidate lost, don't despair. Remember, there is only one Messiah and he is still on his throne. Put not your hope in man in whom there is no salvation but put your hope in God as Daniel learned and Nebuchadnezzar too the most high rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will and he sets over it the lowliest and the most high rules his own kingdom too his son built it His son rules over it. He is faithful to you to the end. Boast in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you 
that there are better things than the kingdoms of this world. There's the kingdom of Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords. Grant that we would be humbled before him because you oppose the proud and are gracious to the humble and exalt him among us. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.